0: Insight of certain Negro spirituals in his book he answers the question about how black slaves in America when daily faced with all kinds of difficulties and pain and sorrow and even at times violence how did they make it through well his answer and, and the whole purpose of the book is they made it through at least partially by the spiritual songs that they sang One song, a spiritual, was titled Deep River, and it was an analogy with great meaning, and I happened to read it this week. And it was about, for slaves, it was about a deep river, and he says they thought it had great meaning to it, that analogy of a river. He says, our lives are like a river, and they're always flowing. Second, he said, there are times when the river will cease to be tranquil and easy. In other words, there'll be times when the river floods. And there'll be times when things in our lives are reckless and dangerous, just like a river. He says, the river flows, but it doesn't always flow the way you think it will flow. He says, it's in that time, and I quote, that we need to remember that often the test of life is found in the pain that can be absorbed without spoiling one's joy, without spoiling one's joy. He completes the river analogy in saying this, that the goal of the river is the same as the source of the river. And for Christians, he said, is God. He says that life flows in from God and out from God. I read that, and I hope you see it too as I was reading what he said. He's telling us that the slaves, they were able to make it through their present fiery trials because of the future, because of the future hope that they had. And that future hope was encapsulized in the songs that they sang. And so he records songs like, I am bound for the promised land. Swing low, sweet chariot. Lyrics he put in there and said, pray, let me enter in. I don't want to stay here any longer. Or let us cheer the weary traveler, the weary traveler along the heavenly way. He said it's those songs and we are climbing Jacob's ladder and the like. He said they sang those songs in their difficulties in their present life. And they were able to make it through and endure those things because they had a future. They had a future that no one could take away from them. You see, that's what he says the black people in America and the Jewish slaves in Egypt had. And I say this and I quote, he says, There is a great strength that comes to a people that our children of a destiny, in other words, if you have a hope, you can get through just about anything, and that's, I think, is what is Peter is going to teach us today. I want you to see or how to learn to see your future and have your present be able to handle your present circumstances through the future that you have. I would guess today that if you read First Peter, it wouldn't take you much time to figure out that they had a deep river of their own. They had fiery trials. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 7, and chapter 4, and verse 12, uh, the Bible says that they were going through all kinds of trials, verbal threats, emotional turmoil, financial difficulty, and possibly even physical dangers and the threat of their own life. So the apostle Peter, he tells them that the way that you respond to your present circumstances is through finding the security of your future in Jesus Christ. Of course, this morning, I would guess that if we went around the auditorium, that we would say, or many would say, that they have a number of deep rivers of their own. I don't know what your present flood stage times that you're facing are when the easy, tranquil waters are not what you're facing. Rather, it's the turbulent ones that seem to want to flood our souls at times. See, but in light of all of that, Here's what Peter says, you have to recognize and see all of that through this, the lens of a guaranteed future with God. That and that alone will be able to help you to have the ability with joy to face your fiery trials. So I want to do that this morning. I want to take a look at two things and then connect them. I want to look at our future life and how secure it is. And I want to look at our present life and how unsecure it is. And how those two actually go together and how you can see your present through your future. So let's look at them one at a time. Verses 3 through 5, our future life. It starts off with the word blessing. It's the Hebrew word it would be, berakot. And even to this day, when Jewish people pray, they pray what's called the Amidah. And the Amidah is consisted of 19 blessings. And they pray them every day. Because for a Jewish person, they wanted to see everything in their life. And the circumstances that they faced as an opportunity to actually praise and bless God. And so it's our, the Greek word is our English word for eulogy. It means to praise or to praise someone. And here's what he says in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why would he praise him? Because God has been abundantly merciful to him. And he has caused all of his readers who put their faith in Christ to be born again see what he's praising God for and what I want you to begin to praise God for this morning is that you have a new life a whole new identity you are a new creation in Christ Jesus you have been born again but it's the adjectives that follow it's the sentences that follow it's the little preposition used three times that really fills out and completes what it means to be born again And there are three of them, and I want to really unpack them just briefly. To a living hope, in verse 3. To an inheritance, verse 4. And to a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time, verse 5. I call these three things our gospel guarantee. Peter is trying to help them see that you can face the fiery trials and all the difficulties, verses 6 and 7, because you have a gospel guarantee. The first thing he says is that you have been born again to a living hope. I think you would agree, all humans, all of us, we are shaped by our understanding of the future. I don't think it's an understatement to say what you believe about the future will completely shape how you are living right now. Let me give you an example. If you believe in evolution, and you believe that everything, including your own life, is just a cosmic accident, that you really have no purpose, there's no meaning, and you have actually no future except death and the grave. It's, that's all you can believe in because you, you wouldn't believe in a God. You wouldn't believe in a heaven or a hell. That there were just a bunch of accidents that have taken place over millions of years. Then your life will be meaningless. They'll be empty. All of it. Why? Because you're here by accident and you're not going anywhere. Because that's what you believe about your future in the year 2000, Andrew DeBlanco wrote a book titled The Real American Dream, subtitle A Meditation on Hope. And he said this, the heart of any cohesive culture, the thing that makes it a culture different from all other ones, is the hope that is at the heart of that culture. Listen to this. Is this not some of or a lot of people in our culture today? Perhaps even some of you here this morning. Hope is the way we overcome the lurking suspicion that all our getting in this life and all our spending amounts to nothing more, listen, to fidgeting while we wait for death. That all the things that we go through, all the things that we spend and put our time and money into, we're afraid that they might be just what we do and fidget with as we wait for death. Why would, you say, why would anyone think? Because you have no hope. See, if your hope is dead, then you have no future. And it will devastatingly impact how you live your life now. Because hopeless people quit things. You have cancer, and your cancer is hopeless. You will be sorely tempted to quit fighting for your life. Your marriage is hopeless, so why not quit, get a divorce, and start over? My career is hopeless, so I quit my job, and my life is flittering around from job to job because it's hopeless. Worst off, my life is hopeless, and maybe some of you have ever been to that place in your life where you didn't think it was worth going on. See, when the hopelessness sets in, even at times, people will take their lives first century Christians that Peter are writing to, they're suffering. They're going through pain, sorrow, grief, loss. Peter wants to assure them it's not hopeless. You don't have to quit your faith and go back on it. You have a living hope, it says. Why, verse three says, because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. It's not too early to park on Easter a little bit. And recognize that Easter is not just the fact that we have a life someday, but we have a life today in Christ. And they all go together. Viktor Frankl, who was a Jewish man, who was put into the death camps of Auschwitz. He was a psychoanalyst. And while he was in the camps, like everybody else, he was fascinated by the way people responded to the incredible suffering and the trials and the terrible grief that they encountered in the death camps. While he was there and studied people, he concluded that there were three different kinds of people that were in Auschwitz. The first ones were people that became brutal. He goes, even the people who started out being the nicest of people became the most violent and brutal people as long as it made them survive. A second kind of people, and he said this was the most common people, type of people, as a lot of them just plain gave up. Listen to what he says, and I quote, many prisoners just lost hope after time. And with all the hope, they lost their spiritual hold. They stopped believing in God. It happened suddenly. Usually it began, he writes, one morning when a prisoner refused to get dressed, refused to wash, to get clean, They refused to go out into the parade grounds for inspection. No matter what anyone said and tried to talk them into it, no matter if the soldiers came in, he says, no entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect on them. They just laid there. They had given up. Nothing bothered them anymore because they had lost hope. I've talked to people who won't get out of bed, they won't go to work, they really won't talk to anybody anymore. Why? Because it doesn't matter anymore. Because they've lost hope. You see, I believe this, and number three, he was right, that only a few people were able to stay kind, he says. Only a few people in Auschwitz were able to keep, and he titles it, their inner liberty why? They would come to him and he would say this. Doctor, they would say to him, Doctor, I, how can I handle all of this? And he would say to them, Life only has meaning if we have hope that gives us a meaning that suffering and death can't even destroy. That's the hope. You see, Peter is telling his readers and he's telling us this morning, do you realize that when you know Jesus Christ and you've been born again, you have a living hope because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And it's a hope that not even suffering and death itself can destroy. That's what Peter is saying to us this morning. We have a future hope, and the ultimate hope, see, the ultimate hope that is in your heart will completely determine how you respond to the things that you go through right now. He says this born again, this salvation that we have, it's given us a living hope, and it's also giving us an inheritance, verse 4 reads, to an inheritance, and then he uses three adjectives, all of them in the Greek start with A, it's like literation. He wants them to remember them. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Put them all together and here's the idea. What God has given you in Christ Jesus Christ is an inheritance. And that's a family term. It's about a father leaving things to his children. See, and that's what you have. It's not just a abstract salvation. It is a family term. See, God has made you a part of his family and he has given you an inheritance. And compared to what you have on this earth, when you can lose everything, including that inheritance, this one is permanent. That's what the three words mean. Imperishable. He uses that in chapter 1, verse 23, when he talks about the imperishable seed. He talks about it in 1 Peter 3, 4, where he says, imperishable inner beauty. He says, women, don't go after the perishable outside, but the inside of your life. He says, you have an inheritance. It's imperishable. It's not subject to decay. It won't grow old. He says, not only that, it's undefiled. It's incorruptible. It can't be changed, poisoned, limited at all. And in the same word in chapter five and verse four, he says, it's unfading. It's not gonna disappear over time. It's permanent. See, he says, look at what you have. And then verse six says, but for a little while, do you see what he says? You have eternity, you have this inheritance and it is permanent and it's always gonna be there for you. So keep your eyes on that. And if you have to, if necessary, he says, verse six, for a little while in comparison to eternity, if you have to go through those things, you'll be able to endure it. Martin Luther, whose life was always at stake. As a Protestant, perhaps the first or one of the first, he was always being hunted down, always fearing for his life. In the midst of that, he wrote a hymn that we still sing to this day, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Listen to the verse and how he compares to what he's going through and what people face now to what he has in Christ. Let goods and kindred go, This mortal life present also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Oh, see, he says, let it all go. It's going to be gone. It's all going to be gone someday. But keep your eyes on the eternal kingdom. It's forever. They're called the Oxford Martyrs on the 16th of October in 1555 on Broad Street, and there's still a place in the street itself that marks the place of the execution of two men. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were chained back-to-back at a stake in the middle of town. Hugh Latimer was about 70, and Nicholas Ridley was about 50. They had a sack of gunpowder tied around their neck, and they were put there to be burned to death. The reason? Because they were Protestants, like this church is. And they believed the gospel, and they believed justification, they believed the things that we're talking about today, and they paid for it with their lives. And it is said that Latimer, his last words to Ridley were this, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. For we shall this day light a candle by God's grace in England that shall never be put out. A year later, Thomas Cramner was put on that same stake and burned to death. But before that, a few months earlier, he had recanted his belief. He had turned back. He was afraid of the fire. So he signed a document saying that he didn't believe Protestant beliefs anymore, and he turned away from it. But God got a hold of his heart, and he repented of that, and he said, I do believe A year later, after these martyrs were burned, he stood at the same stake. The fire began to go and to be raised, and it was approaching him. And when it got close enough, he took his right hand, in which he had signed the document that I don't believe those things anymore, he took his hand and put it in the fire because he wanted no part with it. And he died that day. You know why I tell you those stories? How could you do that? How can anybody be so strong in their understanding and their beliefs? How do you put your hand in the fire? How are you willingly going to the stake when you know that all you had to do is sign a piece of paper? You know how you do it? When your future is secure. When you have a future and you have a living hope and you know that there's a resurrection from the dead and you will be part of it. See, how did they face literal fiery trials? A permanent hope. See, Not a circumstantial hope. See, if you make today, if you make as your ultimate hope a finite object, a temporary item like your health, like your family, like professional achievement or wealth or position in society... See, you're not going to be able to handle the fiery trials that come your way. If you live long enough, and you know this to be true without being morbid, if you live long enough, you will lose all of those things that I just listed. They're all going to go. But how you handle, see, how you handle your now is essentially a function of what your ultimate hope is. So ask yourself the question, how am I handling my fiery trials now? Because the answer to it will indicate and tell you clearly what your real hope is in. So here's what he says. To be born again has a gospel guarantee. And it's three parts. You get a living hope. You get an eternal inheritance. And he says you get a salvation that's going to be revealed in the last time. And I love this part because look at verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded... Verse 4, it says, it's unfading, and it's being kept in heaven for you. And in verse 5 says, what God's power are being guarded through faith. There's our phrase, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you see the double security? You're being kept for your salvation, and your salvation is being kept for you. You can't get any more secure than that. Fort Knox, I don't know if you've ever been there. I know you can't go inside because it's not loud. There's only been one president in the history of the United States that's ever been allowed in Fort Knox. So I know that you and I have not gone in. It is the most secure place on the planet. 16,000 cubic feet of granite. 42,000 cubic yards of concrete. 750 tons of reinforced steel. 670 tons of structural steel. It is surrounded by two electric fences that are monitored 24-7. There is concrete barriers. There are things hidden in the ground that if you stepped in the wrong place, it would explode. And I could tell you the technology and the bill of $5 million a year to keep up that security, that's how much it costs them. And it is all the precious gold bullion of America. See, it has lights everywhere. There isn't an inch of that place that isn't secure. It's the most secure place on earth. But can I tell you this? Your security in Jesus Christ, if you know him, is infinitely more secure than that. Infinitely more. You could even begin to begin to understand how secure that you are in Christ because it's the most secure place in heaven and earth, your salvation. Richard Baxter was a famous Puritan pastor, and he needed this truth. And he tells the story in a book that he wrote called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. He wrote the book because he was going through an illness that he thought he would never recover from in his life. And so he wrote The Saint's Everlasting Rest and how he got through it. He wrote in the book on one page, he says, there are seldom an hour that I am free from pain. Imagine, every day, every hour, he struggled with pain. He says, as a result, here's what his solution was. Once he got that illness and had it for a while and realized he wasn't going to lose it, it wasn't going to go away, he decided for the remainder of his life, about 30 minutes a day, that he would meditate on heaven. He said it absolutely changed his life it made him completely see his circumstances differently because every day he was reminding himself of the salvation and all that would go with it when he came to heaven see peter says the same thing but it's not just heaven did you read the text he says look at verse 5 You are held, or you are, by God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The little word revealed is apocalypse. It's the word apocalypse. It's also used, can you look down if you would be, in the next verse 7? He says, and praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see what Peter is saying? Hey, if I, he's not saying, if I just, Pastor Walker, if I just think about heaven. He didn't say, hey, think about the pearly gates, He didn't think, oh, you know how you can get through your trials? Just think about the streets of gold. Think about the marriage supper of the Lamb and all the food that's going to be there. He didn't say any of this. You know why? Because those things would be abstract. But you know what the parallel statement of those words, revealed, means? It's not just the revealing that He's coming, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what you need. You know how you get through trials? It's just not heaven someday. It's that you're going to see Jesus. That's what he says in verse 8. Do you see it there? You do not see him now. You can't see him. But here's the idea. But you are going to see him. And because of that, it moves you. It motivates you. Because you love him. Listen to how important this is and actually how much a requirement is. 2 Timothy chapter two, 4, verses 6-8 through eight says, Paul says this, he says, I fought the good fight, verse 7. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. How did Paul go through all the beatings and the floggings and all the horrible things he went through? He's going to tell you how he fought and finished the race. You know how he did it? Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown, which is righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. But not to me only, but also to those who love, listen, love, love. His appearing. Oh, you know what Peter says? It's not just heaven. It's not abstract things that might be there someday. Believe it or not, it's not even the people that are there, although we're looking forward to seeing them. You know what it is? It's Jesus someday the king is coming and you say, you know what I do now? You know how I face the fiery trials now? Because I want the king's approval that when he comes back and reveals himself, see, I want him to have known that he was worth it for me. Oh, we sing that song, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see him. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrows will erase. Watch, so bravely run the race now till we see Christ. Oh, see what it is? It's seeing him, keeping our eyes focused on him. See, that's our future life. That's what we have to look forward to. That's how secure our eternity is. And in light of that... He says, connect that to your present life, verse 6. In this, in what, Pastor Walker? What does in this mean? Commentator Craig Keener says it it means this. That's why, that's why, finish the rest of it. That's why you rejoice, verse 6. That's why you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. He says, and later on he says, you will rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory in verse nine. And the word full of glory is a compound word that means this, it'll be more than words. Let me say, someday you will have a future that is more than words can possibly say. So while you're here, if it's necessary, you'll face your trials differently because of it. You say, Pastor Walker, come on. (laughs) Is that even real? How can... How can that be possible? How can anyone have joy during a fiery trial? You know what Peter's answer to that is? Because your future joy impacts your present joy. Let me tell you how I know. I was a student once. You know how you can handle 5,000 pages of reading in one semester? Seven papers, 11 tests, and endless, (laughs) endless reading, Because you know Christmas break is around the corner. I know. Thank you. The amen from the children. I appreciate that. How do you handle long hours at your job? Overtime. That you're not getting paid for. You know how? Because you know in two weeks you're getting on a cruise. You're going to a warm place in the middle of the winter. And you're going to be gone. Vacation. You know why? Because... That's how you look at it. You look at your present through your future. When I was first married to Chris, I was a camp director at a little camp that we owned and our church owned. And so the first we had been married only a few months. And so in the summertime, I was told every week for a month, I would go and be gone Monday through Friday, and Chris would stay home, and uh, I would see her on the weekends, So you have camp food. And after a while, camp food isn't that great. And kids waking you up and little teeny kids. I had a different grade. I had kindergarten through third grade and then up and all the way through high school. You know how you get through it when you're not sleeping well and someone gets you out of bed and someone threw up and all that good stuff? Because you know, I'll get to see Chris on the weekends. You know, it's been great to go home and relax a little bit, sit on the couch, eat the food. That's abstract. That's not what I was looking forward to. I was looking forward to seeing her. Oh, see, isn't that the day that we should live for? You know how you make it through this life and the troubles and the relationships and the difficulties and the chaos and the mess? You know how it is? Because you're looking forward to seeing him. Did you catch the tension in the passage? Things that are happening at the same time. Look at it. Right now, he says, right now you're suffering from trials, but right now, You're rejoicing in your hope. You're doing both. How is that possible? He says, you are incredibly filled with pain. And at the same time as a Christian, you are incredibly filled with joy. How do those things go together? Only if you have a secure eternity. You see, how? How? Because you're you're not going to have a hope that's based on circumstances. Because circumstances are uncertain. But the uncertainties of our life have to be founded on the certainties that we have. And so he says in verse 7, here's the purpose. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it be tested by fire, might be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying. If you have a genuine faith, and that genuine faith, by the way, you don't go back on it as, as uh, he said, Victor Frankl, you don't lose your spiritual hold in life. You don't give up on God. You don't stop coming to church. You don't put your Bible aside. Those aren't the things that we, how we respond. Here's what he says. But if your faith is genuine, even in its testing, he says, it'll be because it's anchored to a living hope. And so when you go through sorrow and great loss and tragedy, it will not decimate you. It will not destroy you. It will not wreck your faith. It will turn you into gold. Is that happening in your life? Is that happening in the things that you face? When the sorrows come and the river overflows, the tears, the pain, suffering, the loss... Is it turning you into gold? In the Lord of the Rings, there's an interesting scene, and I'll close, where they have gone through so much, so much, to get rid of the ring of evil and power. And after it's been done, Samwise Ganges says to Gandalf, what happened, Gandalf? I thought you were dead. And then I thought, I was dead myself and then he says this to Gandalf Is everything sad becoming untrue What happened to this world Gandalf says a dark shadow indeed has been lifted Do you know what he's saying Oh there has been evil there has been a lot of it but our future is still secure It's secure have you ever asked? Have you ever been in the middle of trials, sorrow, tears? Have you ever thought this? Will it ever come a day when everything sad will become untrue? Peter says it will. It will. If you're willing to see your present through your future. Do you have a living hope? Do you have a living hope in Jesus? Do you have a living hope in Jesus who was raised from the dead? Can I tell you this? He did. Did you know Jesus had a living hope? In Hebrews twelve two? it says this, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, his future hope, that he would again share the glory The glory that he had with his father before time began. He had, says, see, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. How did he handle the cross? The pain, the suffering, the emotional turmoil, the loss. How did he handle it? Because he had a future hope that he would be with his father and they would be restored to the glory he had. See, the Bible says he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Even Jesus. Have a living hope? Do you? Not if you haven't put your faith and trust in him. Not if he's not your Lord and Savior. We're going to sing a song. And we're going to conclude with it. I know how the story ends. We will be with you again. But listen to the words. There's future grace that's mine today that Jesus Christ has won. So I can face tomorrow... For tomorrow is in your hands. And then it says, Lord, you are my hope and stay. Do you know how you face tomorrow? Because Jesus is our hope. We've already won. It's time we start living that way. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the living hope the inheritance, the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. It's permanent, eternal. And although many of us here this morning, we're facing some little while episodes in our lives, and we're struggling. Father, I think the struggle often comes because we look at the present without looking at the future. Without focusing on you, Lord Jesus, and all that you are and have done for us. The song we're going to sing says, we don't know what you're doing present, but we know what you've done. We know our future is secure. I pray for those today who are struggling, maybe with a measure of hopelessness. Maybe there's some here today that are completely hopeless because they don't know you, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would bring them to an understanding of the greatest security they can have in a Savior who forgives sins. And they would give their lives completely over to you. And for those of us who have, may we live out that victory every single day. May we look to you, Lord Jesus, and to heaven, and your coming again, that we might have your approval someday because we are willing to see our present through our future, your future, and we'll thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.